back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast, and I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z, bros.com check out cots bros for all your trapping supply needs they have a full line of baits lures they have books dvds traps and various other trapping supplies to get you going so check them out at cotsbros.com podcast is also brought to you by fur harvesters auction inc where the world comes to buy wild fur fur harvesters is an auction house run by trappers for trappers out of north bay ontario canada These guys will work hard to get your fur sold at the best possible price, even in these tough fur market conditions. You can go to furharvesters.com to find more about how to get your fur to FHA, the local uh, pickup locations, and uh, shippers that you can send your fur with. So find them at furharvesters.com. You can also look at past auction results. Now tonight, we're going to take care of a little bit of business right away, and then we get an awesome, awesome interview with Stan Zeray, the Stan Zeray from the TV show Yukon Men that aired on Discovery Channel from, I believe, 2012 to 2017. Stan is an avid trapper up in the bush in Tanana, Alaska, a little village along the Yukon River, and if you've seen the show... You probably know and love Stan, and if you haven't seen the show, you're about to get introduced to a really neat guy and uh, outdoorsman, uh, trapper extraordinaire. So stay tuned for that. But first, we've got a couple things to take care of. Cots Bros, we have talked a little bit about the upcoming 100th episode for the podcast, so um, I'm thinking about what we're going to do, and we're going to have a big, big giveaway there uh, on episode 100. So we're on 98 right now. We just got two more to go, and here's what we're going to do. We have, you have uh, from now until the day that I air episode 100, so basically uh, two weeks or less, uh, which is going to give you plenty of time. So here's what you got to do. The, the prize is going to be pretty substantial. This is a full set of Cots Brothers DVDs. This includes uh, basically all the DVDs that they make. The Flat Set Fix, which is Kellen's Coyote Trapping DVD. In the Lure Room and Cracking the Code, those are both DVDs that Kellen Cots did on uh, lure making. They they take you right through how to make lures and, and provide. He provides different formulas and ingredients and everything else if you want to get into making your own lure. Skunks, the best investment you'll ever make. Kyle shows all the things you can do to get value out of a skunk, including taking out the essence and skinning the skunk and everything else. The uh, similar video, Glands, a Trapper's Commodity. Kyle shows how to extract glands from a number of different critters and what value they have. Muskrats, like Money in the Bank. Back to the Basics DVD. Kyle's famous New Mexico Sandhills Coyote Trapping DVD that J.P. Wilson wore out several times. In the Fur Shed, a fur handling DVD, and finally a road lining DVD. So that is, let me count them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 Cots Bros DVDs is on the line here, and one person's going to get all of these. So pretty, pretty awesome opportunity. You have to do one thing for me. I have a trapper survey that I put together. It's very simple, very easy to go through. And what this is going to do is going to provide me with more information to understand uh, where the audience is, uh, know a little more about the audience of the podcast so that I can get a better handle on what to provide you for information and uh, uh, basically better serve you in the way that I put out this podcast. So you go to trappingtoday.com slash survey. And I'm going to have a link to this in the show notes for this episode as well. Just trappingtoday.com slash survey. And that is going to take you to a trapper survey. This thing is 10 questions. And it's only going to take you uh, about... Uh, I, I did it just to test it out. And it took me like 3 minutes. So there's only one real open-ended question that might take a little bit longer, but it's it, overall it's pretty straightforward. It's just basic information. Ask you how old you are, what state 
you're in, what species, different species you trap, which species you spend the most time trapping. I ask uh, how much money you spend on trapping supplies each year, how many years you've been trapping, and a few other questions, but there's 10 questions, very short, very easy. So, and you do need to provide your email address. I'm not gonna share any personal information. I'm not gonna give your email to anybody. Um, I'm, I'm gonna have that and, and you can trust me with that and you don't even need to give your name. So basically just your email address and then those 10 questions. I am going to enter you into drawing to win those 10 DVDs. And even if you don't need the DVDs, which I mean, we're talking a couple 300 bucks worth of product here or more. But even if you're not interested in them, just fill out the survey. I think it'll be great to provide some extra information and uh, help me make the show better. So get on that, trappingtoday.com survey. You have two weeks to do that on episode 100. When I record that, I'm going to uh, pick the uh, lucky person and probably announce that on the episode. So check it out, fill out the survey. I appreciate that. The other thing, we've talked about Kellen Kotz's Flat Set Fix DVD and the Black Book of Coyote Trapping. We did two giveaways on that and it generated a lot of buzz. And Kellen is feeling extra generous. He offered to do that giveaway one more time. So um, he's going to run that back. And uh, it's, it's again the Black Book of Coyote Trapping and the Flat Set Fix DVD. If you want to boost your coyote and fox catch next season, this book and DVD will provide the blueprint, the system, and the motivation to get out there and get it done. You'll develop a better understanding of coyote location, permissions, and planning, equipment choices, and in-depth understanding of dispersal and travel patterns to take more coyotes and fox. As a bonus, Kellen's also including a copy of Foundations Predator Trapping Primer with even more insights, tips, and tactics to cultivate a more complete coyote trapper. So, to get entered for that, here's what we're going to do. Just something a little bit fun, enjoyable. Um, I love to see the reviews on Apple Podcasts or other places where you get the podcast. And I am kind of have a little bit of a friendly competition going with my pal Chris Pope at Coyote Trapping School. Uh, I haven't really said anything to him, but I always check and see which how many reviews he's and ratings he's getting on Apple Podcasts and uh, try to make sure that I'm close to him or, or maybe even bumping up a little ahead of him. Just a little bit of fun, a little friendly competition and motivation. So even if I have to bribe you with a DVD, I'm going to get you to fill out some uh, extra ratings and reviews. I think we're beating Chris by just a couple. So we'll, we got like 104 uh, ratings right now for the podcast and quite a few reviews. Excited about that. If you've already left a rating and review, email me jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com, and just say left rating and review, and uh, you'll be entered to win the book and DVD, and if you have not, go ahead and leave a rating and review, and email me and tell me that you left it, and you'll be entered as well. So next week, we will uh, draw that um, name and of people that left ratings and reviews and send the book and DVD out. Get that in your hands. And if you don't win, pick up a copy of the book and DVD if you're going to be coyote trapping this fall. Um, it is does have a lot of useful information, and I've learned a lot, and I use those as a reference as I prepare for the upcoming season. So that's the business we had to take care of. Now, we're going to get into the interview with Stanzeray. Boy, I had a lot of fun talking with Stan. He's a great guy to talk with and uh, very knowledgeable and uh, and loves to share information about trapping and other things. So we talked for quite a long time on the phone, and I'm going to split this up into a couple, couple three episodes. So tonight we're going to go into a little bit about life in Tanana, Alaska, how Stan ended up there, because he's certainly not from there and uh, sort of the background of, of how he got to where he is today. We talk a little bit about trapping and how he traps uh, with the dog team up there in Alaska. So looking forward to that and hope that you enjoy. I know I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you can learn more and follow along with Stan at uh, probably the best is if you just like Google Stan Zare. If you get on Facebook, you can follow him, find him on Facebook. 
I follow his YouTube channel. He puts out, I think he's put out at least 50 videos, and there's all kinds of great information there. So you just go to YouTube, and, and it's his name, Stan Zuray, Z-U-R-A-Y. And check out his book. I'll provide a link in the description of the podcast and the show notes uh, for his book called Carry On. It is uh, Stan Zuray's journey from Boston greaser to Alaskan homesteader. And uh, it's, a, it's a real thorough book. It just gives his, his background and his story. So let's get into the interview with Stan. Stan Zaray from Tanana, Alaska. It's great to have you here on the podcast. And it's fun to be here with you and talking about trapping. I love, that's uh, one of my favorite things in the world. So what's life like over there in Tanana? Well, uh, boy, everybody's just kind of finishing up right now on on the fishing thing, and, uh, you know, it's getting, uh, uh, there are still some uh, nets out and people with some fish wheels running and stuff, but, you know, we had a little bit of snow on the ground here today. It's almost all melted, Um, and, uh, you know, so around here, it's, it's just, it's, everybody just follows the season it's everybody just does the same things year after year after year and it all depends on what the season is and now we're going to be moving into uh you know people are going to be all the dog mushes in town are going to start uh getting their dogs in shape you know running them with four wheelers on the dry dry gravel roads and um stuff like that and with trucks and all that and then as soon as the snow comes uh people start running dogs with the uh with the uh you know sleds and stuff but uh, all the snow machine trappers and stuff they'll uh they'll start you know um you know they well snow machines you don't have to you don't have to get them in shape you know so <laughs> yeah so, but as soon as that snow comes people will be uh off you know hunting caribou in the hills and uh and off uh, setting traps. Our trap season doesn't legally open till November first, so we we got some time, and yeah. so it's kind of like an in between time now. And uh, pretty soon, you're not going to be able to do anything on the river because there's going to be ice coming down it and uh, stuff. So uh, you know that'll shut down the river. So it's kind of like an in between fishing and, and and trapping here coming up. Are you ready for trapping season? Or you still got a ways to go. No, I, you know, there's nothing really to get ready. Uh, I actually, my, my sets and everything are all just hanging in the trees. I, I leave my traps out every year. We don't have to, people around here don't have to pull their traps, you know, just get them off the ground and hang them in a tree. And it's really, uh, you know, semi-arid climate up here, so things don't rust and okay. stuff. I, I've got traps that have been hanging in trees for, uh, you know, for, God... 40 years, 40 years, absolutely, you know, and uh, maybe I waxed them before I put them out, that's usually what I'll do, is I'll wax them and then and put them out, and, and I never touch them after that, you know, and so there's not much to get ready on, you know, just like I say, with me, I, I do trap with the dogs, so I got to get the dogs in a little bit of shape so I can, you know, start making like, uh, oh, like a 15-mile run to the first trapping cabin you know and, and stuff you know so that and that doesn't take much that's just get them in a little bit of shape you know so yeah. no, mainly getting ready for the trapping season means taking care of all the things around the house and the village here that i haven't taken care of for the last four months because yeah. i've been at a fish camp 40 miles up river that that's what <laughs> that means taking, like i just spent uh three or four days uh you know, ripping a lot of my foundation apart on the on the house here and uh, putting new stuff in, you know, and fixing that up and fixing trucks and vehicles that I'll be using this winter. And, yeah, it's just fixing broken things, you know. Yep. yep. Chainsaws, winches, everything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready for trapping. <laughs> so speaking of uh, dog trapping, I remember a lot of people will know you from the show Yukon Men. And a very popular TV show for several years. And I remember the first time that I watched the show, there was this guy running a trap line on dog with dogs. 
and he was a white guy out there in the middle of the woods, and he was speaking with an ax with a Boston or a, a Northeast <laughs> accent. I said that guy, that guy is <laughs> definitely from somewhere in the Northeast. So, uh, for for people who don't know your story, how the heck did you end up from uh, from Boston all the way out there in the middle of Alaska? Oh boy! Well, uh, it was uh, you know I just kind of kind of got. Boston just got too much for me. I just it didn't like it. It was uh, getting, uh, I just felt, you know, like it wasn't where I wanted to be. And I started moving around across country. And I didn't really know much about, you know, it was uh, a little neighborhood, Dorchester, you know, in the middle of Boston, you know, a real inner city neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I had never trapped before. I had never uh, in my life uh, went hunting uh, or anything like that, anything other than being a little kid in the woods with a baby gun, you know, that yeah. was about as much hunting I ever did when I'd go out to my, where my grandmother and grandfather lived in the rural outside of Boston. And, but, uh, you know, so I didn't really have any, any concept of, of like, you know, going out in the woods and living out in the woods, you know, it just, I, I, I wanted to get out of Boston. I, I, started moving around the country and went to the west coast and and, and it seemed like i started gravitating towards um outdoor places you know like i'd, I'd show up at a, a, a i'd end up being at a like a, a place where it was kind of rural for a while and I'd, people would have you know horses or a cow and and uh you know or chickens and stuff and live out a little bit and seemed like I started gravitating towards that stuff and I gravitated my way all the way up into uh, northern British Columbia and lived there for the uh, way out in the woods you know 150 miles up at the end of a, a, a dirt mining road uh, for a winter you know 40 below and the whole thing you know shooting moose with around the people there you know and, and just uh, around trapping and and then, uh, and then I uh, moved up into Alaska, and I finally came to here, where I am, you know. <laughs> and because you know this is my country legally, you know, so you know I couldn't stay in Canada, and so I had to come here. And uh, and I've just been here for God over forty since nineteen seventy three, you know, and yeah. uh, and made a lot of stupid mistakes because <laughs> I moved way out in the woods well the, this was the 70s so for younger people who don't and, and myself who weren't around in the 70s there was a lot of moving around and people going places and and trying to figure things out right it was it was it was uh you know i grew up uh in my really young years in boston you know fully uh, uh engrossed in the whole you know you know go get a jo job and excuse me, uh, go get a job and go in the military when you get old enough and, and, uh, and, you know, just work hard being a, whatever, a mechanic or something like that. And, and then all of a sudden the seventies hit with the, you know, all the turmoil, political turmoil and the Vietnam war and all that sort of stuff and the protests and the hippie generation and the Woodstock and all that sort of stuff. So it was, uh, and the drugs in the end, you know, the drugs were just, yeah. uh, you know, when everything turned sour, the cities just started, you know, the heroin and everything in the cities. And that's what drove me out of the cities was when everything just soured, you know, yeah. and uh, friends, you know, dying and and just getting all sorts of stuff. You know, that's what drove me out of the city. It, it, like you say, the 70s, yeah. 60s, 70s there. So, yeah. yeah. So you, you first got to when you went to alaska you you homesteaded right on a piece of land yeah there, there's uh you know people have probably heard about you know there's something called the federal homestead act and um in 1973 they they enacted it for i believe the very last time and they only enacted it for about a year so when we came up to alaska <laughs> there was some state land that was maybe legally available uh, in some rural places. Uh, and there still is in Alaska. Right now, today, there still is. Um, the state does have these parcels of land. They're not the greatest land, but it's, it is land way out there. And they, uh, 
it's pretty cheap, you know, and they make them available for people to stake and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, there was the Federal Homestead Act, and, and part of the Homestead Act was uh, uh, a clause known as uh, home siting, and that's where you stake a five-acre claim to just live on this land. You don't have to cultivate it and turn it into like a typical homestead. It was just a five-acre deal, and they had these parcels, real remote parcels all over the state or in a few places around the state, and we picked a... Uh, one that was pretty isolated, uh, you know, and in the north of the Yukon River here, and and just uh, flew out to it and got dropped off by a plane and uh, waved goodbye to the plane, and uh, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing story. For people, uh, for people who don't have the background, of course, I recommend they read your book, Carry On. Uh, that basically tells the whole story right there, and and. Uh, Pretty, pretty fascinating. It does. That, that's what that. Yep. Yeah, that's what that book was uh, designed to do. It was designed to tell the story of a, a guy from Boston that, you know, has a little bit of my life in Boston, just to give a background, and then it, it talks about, uh, yeah, for it from uh, beginning to when we started getting a, a grips on things. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, but it, it it it's pretty good. It, the guy that wrote it, you know, there's lots of stories about guys who go out in the woods. This is the way I describe the book. It's lots of stories about guys who go out in the woods from cities and all that. But so much, uh, and and I did it because I thought it would be a cool thing to have for my kids and grandkids and all that when I, you know, long gone. And, uh, and you know, but I often wondered, how, you know, is this guy going to write? any good but it doesn't really matter because it would just be a documentary of you know of my life you know which should be good enough you know so i didn't really care but it turns out the guy he really did a good job and he really writes well and he makes the thing interesting i've had so many people say when i started reading i couldn't put it down yeah i was the same way i I got reading it again real and and so I think the guy did a, a good job. I'm I'm not a writer or a, or even a reader you know, of books, but uh, it sounds like people liked it. Yeah. So when you got when you got kind of settled in, I'm wondering when was there a time or a point at which you felt like okay, this is where I belong and this is where I'm going to be. Well, I think um, I think that happened. When I lived in northern Canada, uh, I, I don't think from northern Canada on, you know, once I saw that life there and and saw how some of the people around there lived, uh, and and I was a part of it for like you know a little over a year, I I don't think I ever. I think I always felt from there on that that this is what I want, and it was just a matter of, I'm in the wrong country, it's not my country, you know, <laughs> yep. and, and this is what I want, But I, so I'm going to go to Alaska, because Alaska is my, my country, you know, and I can legally live there for as long as I want, and I'm just going to do the same thing, and nothing's going to stop me, you know, I mean, I, we happened to luck out on walking into this uh homestead act thing when it was open in 1973 but you would have figured out know, a way either, had, either way oh yeah we we were perfectly content to just find the longest uh most northern um uh, dirt road that headed up into anywhere and just drive up it as far as we could and just leave the car and yeah. just say goodbye to the car and uh you know came up in a 1970 64 Chevy station wagon <laughs> and uh, and uh, we were just going to leave that thing sit in any old place and, and then hike another whatever 50 miles from there and and just build or whatever and it, it we didn't care if it was legal or not we were just because you know back in those days in Alaska it didn't matter yeah you know yeah. people were and and even today you know people kind of do that also too if you if you get far enough away you're not bothered, you know, like people go out and trap all the time and build a little trapping cabin or camp or something like that and trap all winter and, you know, trap there for a few years and 
people, yeah. No, we nothing was going to stop me. I knew what I wanted <laughs> from, uh, yeah, once I, once I, from that Northern Canada experience. Yeah. So when you got going there, you, you did a lot of, uh, you gardening and stuff and, and uh, grew your food. When did you actually get into trapping? Uh, well, the, 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 that spring, um, and it was more for food and fur for, for like a couple of years for ourselves. But even that spring, I landed in the uh, spring while there was still snow. They landed us on a, it was a, uh, uh, ski plane and it landed us on a frozen river and it was uh, on April 9th so there wasn't much of the trapping season left as a matter of fact the uh, legal trapping season was closed but uh, but we uh, except for wolves I believe the wolf season was so we, we I set out uh, I, I would make snares out of wire and stuff like that We I had no traps I had no snares but I would make snares out of wire and stuff like that and set them out for, you know, wolves and lynx and stuff like that, whatever I could get. And But it was mostly for food, you know. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's what it was for. And uh, and we caught a few things. And then the next winter, I got a hold of a couple dozen uh, traps and started setting out martin traps and, and stuff. But a lot of that stuff we would use for uh, our own clothing, like mitten linders and and stuff like that, you know. And so uh, it was a. But probably by the third year out there, we we saw it as a way to make money. And actually, for the eleven years that I spent out living out at, at this uh, place, forty miles off of this village here that I'm in right now, uh, that's where I am right now, calling from uh, my home in the in the village. Um, for for the, all those years, probably ninety percent of our income uh, was made from trapping. You know, and it wasn't much. We had it was extremely poor country. That's why they had the the thing open to uh, open to uh, in the federal homestead act. You know, it was a really poor country, even like living in Tanna here, this is much better country right around the village here on the Yukon River, but it was extremely barren and open country, uh, and so that's, and that's still to this day where I trap, and uh, so I, it's not like, I, I'm just totally amazed when I see somebody with 20 wolves behind them, or somebody who goes out and catches, you know, 300 martin, yeah. or something, or... 20 foxes in a uh, in, in a day you know you know some of these places you know in the low 48 even you know right so uh, you have to cover a lot day. of ground to get get enough food. I have I remember one time um, middle of the winter of course I've already taken some fur off of my line and stuff like that but middle of the winter making two checks in a row and that was at the height of our trapping when we had, between me and my ex-wife, we had uh, 250 traps out. Wow. And uh, and I may remember making two checks of my trap line, which a check back in those days took about seven days, <laughs> you know, five to seven days. I don't, I can't remember how many days it took back then, you know, but it was, uh, it was anywhere between five and seven days to make a run. And I caught zero, nothing. Oh man! So I mean, that's uh, and but you know, I might catch eighteen martin uh, first check in the fall. You know, you might catch eighteen martin or something like that. I think one. Well, let's put it this way: one time I caught eighteen martin on a, a check of my line. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one time in, in eleven years, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, living back there, so it's pretty poor country. Uh, so, but we lived on it. You know, I, I would live on, uh, I remember three years in a row, we're making $500 a year between trapping and my wife used to make, uh, my ex-wife used to make uh, some birch bark baskets and stuff and sell them in the village. And sometimes we'd make a wolf rough or something if we had some extra wolf fur, you know, we'd put one in the store and sell it and, yeah, yeah. you know, 50 bucks or something. And so it wasn't much money, but it was enough to... Uh, Live fine as far as we were concerned. Yep. So at some point, though, you decided that you you wanted to live in the village uh, 
and 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 kind of continue to trap out in that country? Yeah, the the decision to uh, sometimes I got to remember this, you know, but <laughs> the decision to move out of uh, that uh, that country out there um, that was uh, what what did that was the ability to catch enough dog food every year. And in the early years, I had a really hard time where, um, you know, I could, I had a, a whole bunch of dogs and I couldn't, I didn't catch enough uh, fish because it's a, it's a, it was a little salmon spawning stream. Mm -hmm. And some years, you know, if it's, you have a single run, you know, you know, in, in the bigger rivers, you might have, you know, you know, 20 or 50 different stocks traveling at a time. So if one little stream, uh, you know, happened to have a bad freeze out or low water or something made it so that the salmon were going to be poor in that stream, you know, there was all these other streams that were okay. So you didn't notice a bad run. And also there's lots more fish. Yeah. But on this little salmon spawning stream, it's just a single stock. And say you had a flood in the fall and it killed all the eggs that got planted that summer. And that happened one time. And I couldn't feed, I didn't have enough food to feed my dogs. And, of course, had to get rid of a lot of dogs, which was an extremely sad thing. And But anyway, at some point after being there for like 10 years, we had a year like that again. And I had a beautiful team that, you know, like I say, after being out there 10 years I had you know things were running pretty smooth and I had this really nice team of dogs and I'd learned how to you know fish really well and put up fish really well and all of a sudden the run didn't materialize that year there was had been a four years prior had been a you know flood and ruined all the eggs in the river and now there's no fish in the river this one summer. And I said, well, this is never going to happen again. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to be at the mercy of this little river when 40 miles to the south of here, there's the Yukon River with beautiful, rich fish instead of worn-out spawning fish and, you know, and all the fish I'll ever want. And so, and that's all my friends who lived here in the village, they would have, you know, every every time I'd come into town, I'd see all the beautiful fish they had, and, <laughs> and I said, "I'm moving there. We're moving to the Yukon. <laughs> That's why I moved out of there." Yeah. But I still trap out there. I love the country out there. I love the openness and the barrenness, and the, I, I just—it's wild country, and I love it. And I still yeah. go out there, and I'll be heading out there as best I can this year. I'm, yep. Yep. So yeah, it's fun. there's a reason that those villages are all along the big rivers. It turns out. Oh, exactly. And there's a reason why uh, nobody trapped out in that country where I was at. And uh, apparently, if you went back about seventy years, sixty years ago, when I first came, uh, there were people who were uh, alive back then. Some of the trappers back in in like the seventies uh, that were older. They remember that country that I was in, and they some of them even trapped in it, and it was really good. But there's been so many fires out that way uh, over and over again that it's uh, it's just uh, all this, you know, they call it black spruce or, or just plain tundra, you know, and it's not very good for game. And uh, so... Yep, so that's why, uh, so there were some people back then that trapped, but nobody lived out there. Nobody, <laughs> you know, the, the the fish and everything was always along the Yukon yep. River, and everybody had fish camps in the summer, and they would move to the fish camps and uh, catch all these beautiful fish and for themselves and, uh, yep. yeah, and you, the dogs. You sure tried, though. I remember reading where you, uh, somewhere you had, uh, you had planted eggs in the gravel in the in that river to try to get that run going again, and we did, and that really worked too. They were, uh, you know, we had this one book called the Salmon Rancher's Manual, and and we had I remember there's some some people in Russia that sent us some stuff, and there were some fishing game people in the state here that 
that uh, sent us uh, information on it. And even though it was it was something you you weren't back then, nobody cared. But you you were really weren't supposed to be doing that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but we did it, and uh, and it made a big difference. There were people uh, that moved in around in '73 when we did too, and they remember the river, what it was like in the early years, and 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 they. Uh, well, we actually had proof. We had these incubation boxes that we would put the eggs in, and at the end of the uh, uh, the next spring, we'd pull them up out of the river before the ice would come down, and uh, and we would see how all the eggs had hatched out yep. and uh, and stuff like that. You know, uh, the boxes. Once in a while, there'd be a failed box where they'd all be dead. You know, the right got silted in or something. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but. Uh, but you know, we we could see the results of it, and uh, it's not a, it's not rocket science to fertilize a salmon egg and put it in the gravel. <laughs> no, we, we did that, and we actually had really good runs. It's just uh, uh, like I say, on some of those years, you know, you would fertilize the eggs and put them in the gravel, and then at you know any time um, after that, the eggs can't be disturbed it's just uh you know they go through a 30 30 right. uh 30 day uh, sensitive period and uh, anytime during that time if another salmon comes along and lays eggs on top of them or you have a flood and the gravel kind of moves around and and there's a lot of uh you know shifting of the the gravel and stuff like that on the riverbed it'll it'll kill all the eggs and that's what happens. And so you have no control over that, no matter how many eggs you fertilize. So, yeah. So when you moved into the village, did, how how did it work as far as uh, transitioning and fitting in? Was it different, you know, going from living in basically in the middle of nowhere to uh, to having neighbors and and tra- having other people that caught salmon and trapped and everything else? Well, it was, uh, you know, initially, um, out on that little river, I, uh, I didn't, for me, living out there, and then at the end of every fishing season, I would come in and, uh, you know, in the fall time, and make my first trip in, and I'd hear all these stories about how there was all this, uh, oh, so-and-so took my Eddie, and we had trouble this summer, or this and that, <laughs> And 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 stuff, and I, and so, I didn't think there was any room for me on the Yukon River around the village of Canada, and so it was kind of funny, you know, um, because I just wasn't around in the summertime, and I, and, but I, you'd hear these stories, but it turns out that was all fighting over. So anyway, we came in, and I, and and I did wasn't. Uh, there was a little cabin around the Tanda area that had a, had a fish camp, and I was going to stay there for the winter. And uh, but then we were going to take our boat and go down river hundreds of miles to this one area where it was very few people and very few fish camps. And we thought that's where we were going to have to go. But when I came in here, I, I realized that there's lots of places to fish. There's just knots of lots of not lots of places to fish during commercial fishing season okay you know and 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 that was the problem subsistence fishing you know just for your dogs or whatever that that was not an issue and and having a fish camp and you know there was plenty of room for fish camps it was just having a fish site uh during you know this commercial fishing season uh that's what it was all about but they were i just realized that it was okay after you know coming down here and spending that fall here and and the winter here and and there's just no need to go anywhere and uh and so i i started fishing around tana and eventually a, a friend of mine who uh went in the national guard a uh, good buddy of mine russ he uh went full-time national guard and he uh uh moved out of his fish camp and he gave me his fish camp and he gave me his fish wheel and and I had been working with him sometimes helping him up at his camp anyway and uh and he just said yeah just take it take the my cabin take my fish wheel my smokehouse wow see you wow. all you know 
uh, and he went in the National Guard and uh, he got a good job there. And uh, and so that's what you know I did, and I and I met my present wife uh, during that time, and uh, and uh, we had kids and raised them at Fish Camp, and and uh, now the kids are all grown up and. And uh, one of my sons is actually getting his own dog team together right now, you know. No kidding. It's season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and he was somebody who, because he got raised around dogs and did so much traveling with me in dog sleds, he never wanted to have dogs, you know. He wanted a fast <laughs> snow go. For years, he'd have all these fast snow goes, you know, the fastest snow go he could afford or scrounge up or whatever. And, and, uh, and stuff and and now he's uh yeah just in the last couple of years he's got this little dog team together and he'll probably be actually he, he wasn't last year he just kind of was getting going on it and uh running them and uh this year i'm sure he'll be checking his traps with it is this joe or is this another son Mm-hmm. okay yeah this is joe yeah yeah this is joe the on the go joe who uh that's what i call him on the go joe he's always wanting to Go. Yeah. And, uh, so, are, will you guys be? Will you guys be the only ones running traps with dogs, or do other people do it out of the village? There's a there's a literally three, four. There's very few people even. Uh, there's not even a lot of people trapping anymore. It's it's really changed since the '70s and '80s. Um, but. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, let's see, with dogs trapping, there's one of the fella who does that, um, yeah, that, that's about it, you know, that that really does it, there are some people who run some traps, uh, you know, on their race training trails, but like people who actually have their dogs, is, this will be three of us now, wow. and, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really changing the whole trapping thing, and and as you know, the prices of the fur is not helping anything either. Right. So, so you're mainly targeting yeah. Martin, as I take it? Uh, yeah, but, you know, if I can catch a wolf or wolverine, we, we have so many, uh, so much need for, like, roughs and stuff like that. I haven't, uh, I, 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 w- I haven't even sold the wolf in years. Really? Yeah, I've sold some roughs, uh, but uh, probably half of my roughs, go to selling or actually more than half go towards the family i mean i some some years i i yeah you know because i'll only catch uh two or three wolves in a in a winter you know and so it's not like a like i say that having 20 wolves behind me for a picture is <laughs> something you don't be with here you know yeah and a lot of people don't realize how important it is to have fur when it's that cold yeah, yep, yep. Fur mitts and uh, definitely the the fur ruffs and fur hats too. Yeah, fur hats. And, yeah. So, what's your trap line like today? Yeah, you're trapping a bunch of the same country that you trapped before. Um, how long is it? Do you got cabins you stay at? How does that all work? Well, uh, it it. Uh, it's uh i go to the cabin that i used to live in in the 70s and that is 40 say 40 miles uh from 10 here and the uh first cabin out of town uh when i leave town here it's uh this place called 14 mile hill it's probably about 16 miles out of town and uh and then there's another cabin about 23 miles out of town, about 10 more miles, 12 more miles from there, and then there's a, and then there's my main cabin at the 40 mile place, and those are my cabins. I have cabins that I used to when I was younger. Even when I lived in town here, I would trap my whole line that I ran out of that that cabin that's 40 miles out of town. I had a lot of trails and cabins beyond that but i don't trap them anymore you know i'm just i'm 70 years old and 
it's just a little too much uh, taking care of everything I got to take care of in town here. And if I can, if 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 by halfway through the winter I can have uh, a trail out to that cabin, I'm happy. You know. Yeah. And uh, and that's the extent of my line. You know. But in the old days, you know, like when I had the kids, I would take. Uh, uh, you know, before the kids went to school, you know, before they were in kindergarten and stuff like that, I would, uh, my wife worked in town here, so I would take my kids with me uh, on my trap line, and I'd take care of the kids because she had to work, you know, so yeah. um, before they went into school, you know, that's what I would do, and we would go all the way out to that cabin 40 miles out, and then I would... Uh, check trail another 25 miles beyond that so i had multiple i had one two three cabins you know on on that 25 mile loop so wow so you know we yep and lots of traps yeah lots of traps yeah way more ground than than you can cover nowadays then yeah yeah it's just you know it's just too for some reason, uh, I don't know. It 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 seems like at at I don't know if you want to. I don't even like thinking about it. But you know, at my at 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 my age or something like that, it seems like I've just uh, don't have quite the same uh, touch. You know. <laughs> well, that's you're you're still using dogs, mi- so you- that's probably putting it real mildly. <laughs> well, you you uh, <laughs> you're in good shape for seventy, just based on what I've seen you you know do with the dogs and stuff. And, Probably got another 20, 30 years of that left. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> not as painful. Another 20 or 30 waking up every morning with all the pains I do. I don't know. If I, yeah, no, no, it's all good, though. I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You know, they're, they're, you know, sometimes this. Well, cripes, I mean, I can look back at my 20s and 30s. I often say that somebody will, you know, have a, a a bad back or something like that. My my back was worse when I was tw- in my twenties and thirties, and it is now. You know, because I I've just learned to not do stupid things. You know. Well, that, that means that, there's that, hope that for me then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just got to stop doing stupid things. You got to learn what not to lift and and when to back off. And and I swear my back's been better in my old. But there's other things too. You know, your knees and. They're, they're shot, you know, yeah. but, uh, you know, you learn to, uh, things you can do to get by, you know, I got braces I put on, you know, and I, and I'm back in business, you know, so yeah. I'm do it as long as I can do it, you know? So everybody switched to snowmobiles. Uh, why, why'd you stick with the dogs? Well, I got a snow machine, you know, living in town here of, uh, like all the years I lived out in the, the woods there, I, I had a snow machine one time for a year and a half and, and eventually just got rid of it. I didn't use it for trapping, but I used it for hauling supplies from town and, and just said, ah, you know. But those machines back in those days, they they just broke so easy. They were just, yeah. they did nothing like the machines nowadays. And now living in town here, you know, when I moved to town, uh, you know, it's just like uh, in the wintertime, people drive snow machines here just like they're driving trucks. So if I want to go three miles down to town to check my the post officer or do some work at the city garage or whatever, you know, uh, I'll go visit a friend. I'll, I'll hop on my snow machine. Right. But then if I went out in the woods, I'd, I'd take my dogs. And if I go out trapping, like with my, uh, or if I go out hunting with my uh, son or something, out moose hunting in the winter, or with other friends, you know, they all have snow machines, so I, you know, would go with them with a snow machine because the dogs would just get left in the dust. Yeah. So I do drive snow machine, but I just, it's just something about, um, I just enjoy being out there. It's uh, Dogs are company, snow machines are not company, you know, <laughs> and I, I guess maybe it's from the old days of uh, I just got used to dogs and realized that it's something that you know at least uh if you have a cylinder go down you can throw it in the you know you have a one of your two cylinders in your snow go go to heck you know you're shut down you know if i have a cylinder go down and my dog team i throw them in the uh 
in the sled, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I it just it's in some ways a better feeling to be out there with dogs, you know, because I know they're not, they're not going to break down, you know. And uh and so I just after so many years of driving dogs, I just uh Sometimes I, I wonder if, uh, you know, if, if Trapman got, there was one winter here a couple of years ago that I had a severe uh, uh, problem, you know, physically, and and I had to finish off the season um, running with a snow go. I could not, I couldn't even uh, hook up a dog, never mind, um, you know, I, I never mind uh, running, run a dog sled with, you know, 12 dogs or something. Yeah. And so I realized, you know, with a snow machine, you can be pretty disabled and still check a trap line, you know? Yeah. And, uh, cause I would go out and, and I finished off the season doing some checks with my snow machine. And, uh, you know, I, and, w- and the time may come when I may have to do that. And, uh, but it's like everything else. I don't care. I mean, if that's what I have to do, that's what I do. I don't, I'm not worried about when that time comes, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, there's always a way to get by to the point where maybe I won't even be able to trap someday. But that's just, you know, um, but that's not going to stop me trapping this winter. Exactly. I, I like that attitude. When people get worried about things, I, I, I think that there, we have enough legitimate things to worry about. Why worry about other things that might not even be an issue right now? Yeah, yep, yep. Why let it uh, ruin your time now? I mean, you could, you could, from the day you're born, you could be worrying about, you know, (laughs) what's going to happen on down the line, you know. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stan. Be sure to check out his book, uh, Carry On, and his YouTube channel. And in the next episode, we'll we'll hear more from Stan. I think we're going to get into a little bit of his Martin trapping and how he likes to trap Martin out there and uh, sort of piecing together trapping as a source of income and the challenges associated with that. We'll, we'll get into that next episode. And then in a future episode, we're going to talk all about the background of the show Yukon Men, how that got started, and sort of some behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, how things went down, and and what is to come in, uh, in Stan's world and uh, the projects that that he's working on right now so stay tuned for that thanks again for tuning in keep on talking trapping keep on thinking trapping and get ready for trapping season it'll be here before you know it thanks guys have a good one